Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes upsetting descriptions of murder, abuse, harm against minors, sexual abuse of minors, and sexual assault that some people may find distressing and disturbing. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. And please note that we've changed some of the names in this story. I want to start this story by saying that trauma is not an excuse for murder. Plenty of people survive terrible experiences and don't go on to commit violent acts. However, when we're looking to explain humanity's worst, we sometimes need to look to the past, not to absolve crimes, but to begin to understand them. This story ends with a gruesome crime. But at the beginning, you won't find a woman who was born evil. Instead, we'll meet a young girl who endured the most abusive childhood imaginable and split from reality to cope. Lisa Montgomery's history doesn't change the facts of what she did. Knowing it can, however, help us comprehend it. Welcome to Female Criminals, a Spotify original from Parcast. History has seen its fair share of women in trouble with the law, but whether or not they were all criminals is sometimes open to interpretation. This is the show where we cover the full spectrum of women behaving badly. This week, we'll meet Lisa Montgomery, a young woman who was horrifically abused throughout her life. We'll dive into her psyche, exploring the coping mechanisms that both helped and ultimately failed her. Next week, we'll follow Lisa's obsession with having another baby all the way to its horrific, deadly outcome. We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. In order to understand Lisa Montgomery's life, we have to go all the way back to the year 1967 when her mother, Judy, first got pregnant. 
At the time, the 20-year-old was living in Washington State after marrying John Hedberg. But John was an army man who was gone more often than he was at home. Judy's only real company was her stepdaughter, four-year-old Diane. At this point, Judy was drinking heavily, and it seemed nothing could stop her from reaching for the bottle, not even a pregnancy. Unsurprisingly, after nine months of steady drinking, there were consequences. When Judy gave birth in February of 1968, her daughter Lisa had fetal alcohol syndrome. Before we continue with Lisa's psychology, please keep in mind that I'm not a licensed psychiatrist or psychologist, but we have done a lot of research for the show. According to the Mayo Clinic, fetal alcohol syndrome is a condition in a child that results from alcohol exposure during the mother's pregnancy. The alcohol gets soaked up in the womb and can cause irreparable harm to the baby's development. Symptoms of the condition range from brain damage to facial disfigurement, but in Lisa's case, it was all internal. The parts of her brain associated with learning, judgment, and impulse control were impaired. As a child, however, these issues went undiagnosed, and Judy, well, she thought she and her baby were in the clear. Perhaps it wouldn't have made a difference. According to Diane, Judy was an abusive mother, and just about everything seemed to set her off. If Lisa didn't eat all her food, Judy would strap her into her high chair and leave her alone for hours. Baby Lisa would scream and scream, but it didn't matter. Judy wouldn't budge. Things escalated from there. Judy started using belts, cords, and hangers to punish the girls, whatever was closest. Years later, Judy would tell investigators that her daughter's first words were, don't spank me, it hurts. Fortunately for Lisa, four-year-old Diane was always looking out for her. From the moment Diane laid eyes on her little sister, it was love at first sight. Diane tried her best to shoulder the brunt of Judy's wrath, but that only made her own punishments more extreme. One time, Judy forced Diane to strip naked and stand outside in the snow. Then she refused to let her back inside for hours. The only small consolation was that the two sisters had each other. Once Lisa was old enough, she moved into Diane's room. At night, they'd hold hands as they fell asleep in their beds. And when they woke up, they played house with their tea set in a desperate attempt to avoid Judy's mood swings. There was a rhythm to their life, even if only a tenuous one. Up until that point, their father John seemed pretty absent. It's unclear how much he knew about the abuse, if he was aware of it at all. However, in 1970, he was reassigned to Fort Riley in Kansas, and the family followed him there. Judy packed up the car and drove two-year-old Lisa and six-year-old Diane to their new home. In Kansas, Judy and John had another daughter, Patty. After that, John split. We don't know why, but it seems he'd had enough. He divorced Judy and left his three daughters in her care. Judy didn't like being alone. Once John left, she had a revolving door of boyfriends, and her choice in men didn't bode well for her children. One night, four-year-old Lisa and eight-year-old Diane were asleep in their bedroom. Judy was out again, and she left her new boyfriend to watch the girls. 
The man took advantage of the situation. He went up to their room and slipped inside. Diane startled awake to find the man in her bed, touching her. Then he forced himself on her. All Diane could think about was protecting her sister. If she went along with it, hopefully she could keep Lisa safe. Lisa woke up to the noise and froze. She was too young to understand what was going on or what she was supposed to do. All she could do was wait in horror until it was over. Both girls were traumatized by the attack. They were frightened of speaking out, so neither told anyone what had happened. Besides, they figured that as long as they had each other, they could survive. Unfortunately, they wouldn't be together forever. One day in 1972, four-year-old Lisa and eight-year-old Diane overheard their mother yelling into the phone. The conversation went on for what felt like forever, until finally Judy slammed down the receiver. Then she stormed over to Diane, squatted down in front of her, and told her that social services were coming to take her away. Diane couldn't believe what she was hearing. She was ecstatic. She'd endured so much under Judy's thumb. The idea of a new home and a fresh start was the best thing she could have ever imagined. Until she realized Lisa wasn't coming with her. It's unclear why Diane was the only sister to be taken away, but for the first time in Diane's life, she felt safe. Her foster parents were kind and caring. Of course, Diane wanted the same for her little sisters. She wanted to find someone and ask them to save Lisa and Patty from all the abuse. But if she did, she'd also have to admit what had happened to her. She worried that if her new family realized how damaged she really was, they wouldn't want her anymore. So Diane stayed quiet, and no one ever went back to help her sisters. Back at the Hedberg household, the dynamics shifted irreversibly. Diane had been Lisa's protector. Now, without her, Lisa took the brunt of all the abuse. When Lisa was in kindergarten, Judy met 41-year-old Jack Kleiner. Like her, he was violent and also drank heavily. The two enabled and exacerbated their worst tendencies. They beat and punished Lisa and Patty, as well as Jack's five children from another marriage. Despite the pain they inflicted on the kids they already had, Judy and Jack had two more sons in quick succession. Then in 1974, they finally got married and moved the family to Oklahoma. Even after all of these big changes, six-year-old Lisa seemed to be doing all right. All through elementary school, she got A's and B's and participated in extracurriculars. She loved to read and she even learned to play the violin. But as she got older, her stepfather started to look at her differently. Before, she'd been a nuisance. Now, he saw her as a young woman. According to court documents, one night in 1979, Jack entered Lisa's room and woke her up. As he started to touch her, 11-year-old Lisa froze. She likely flashed back to seven years earlier when she witnessed the same thing happen to Diane. She knew what came next, but she was also terrified of her stepfather. If she didn't comply, she knew he'd beat her. That was the first time her stepfather raped her. 
Lisa endured many similar horrific nights after that. Whenever she tried to resist, John threatened to move on to Patty, and Lisa couldn't have that. Like Diane had done for her, she'd do whatever it took to protect her younger sister. That gave Jack free reign to continue abusing Lisa. When he decided he wanted a little more privacy, he built a shed attached to their trailer. That way he could take Lisa in there and no one would see or hear them. Eventually, he started to bring his friends by too. Jack encouraged them to take turns assaulting Lisa. They'd tie her up, beat her, and even urinate on her. During these assaults, Lisa tried to go somewhere else in her mind. According to neuropsychiatric specialist Dr. George Woods, the abuse Lisa endured led to a loss of contact with reality. The only way she could deal with such constant and long-term mistreatment was to dissociate. According to the DSM-5, dissociation is a disruption, interruption, or discontinuation between a person's normal behavior, memory, identity, consciousness, emotion, or perception. In other words, it's the brain's way of protecting itself. When a traumatic event becomes too much, a person can dissociate in order to avoid dealing with the actual episode. They feel detached, almost as if they're watching the incident on TV rather than it happening to them. For Lisa, it became automatic. Whenever her stepfather brought her out to that shed, she just checked out. She closed her eyes and pretended she wasn't there, that the abuse wasn't happening. But eventually, that coping mechanism would be her downfall. Up next, Lisa screams for help, and no one comes to her rescue. The most urgent mysteries in the world are missing persons cases. The stakes are too high not to pursue every plausible possibility, and some implausible ones too. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new podcast, Disappearances. In 2020, after spending years searching for the truth, I use social media to help bring justice to my sister Alyssa's nearly two decades long disappearance. Now, every Thursday on Spotify, I'm exploring the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. From child abductions and mystifying murders to those who took drastic measures to start over, each episode of Disappearances journeys through a different high-profile missing persons case, ripped from the headlines and ripe for explanation. Because no one just vanishes into thin air. The answers are out there, waiting to be found. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast Disappearances. Hear a new episode every Thursday, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. 
1979, 11-year-old Lisa Montgomery's stepfather, 47-year-old Jack Kleiner, sexually assaulted her for the first time. As the abuse continued for years, Lisa started to dissociate from reality to deal with the horrors. Unsurprisingly, this affected her social and academic life. When she got to high school, her grades dropped, and even though she'd once been an A student, she was suddenly placed in special needs classes. One administrator chalked the change up to what they called deep emotional trauma, but it seems they never made any moves to see if they were right or if there was something they could do to help. If they'd done even a little digging, they might have uncovered how much Lisa was dealing with. Someone could have sent her to a doctor who might have taken into account her adverse childhood experiences, otherwise known as ACEs. ACEs are harmful events that occur before a person reaches age 18. There are 10 categories, including divorce, physical abuse, exposure to alcohol abuse, or violence in the home. Physicians score patients on how many they've experienced in their life. According to Dr. Christina Bethel, the effects of ACEs are cumulative, cascading, and multidimensional. The higher a patient's score, the more likely it is that they'll have chronic health problems, mental illness, or substance abuse problems as an adult. If Lisa had been asked the questionnaire and answered honestly, she would have scored nine out of 10. Knowing your score doesn't offer a cure, but it can lead to a person getting the help they need. Unfortunately, no one at the school ever stepped in, and Lisa never saw a doctor. But the abuse was all too much, and Lisa was desperate for someone to notice. She had an older cousin, David, who was a sheriff's deputy, and she thought she could trust him. After all, he was a public servant and had the power to actually do something, in theory. At some point, she went to see him, and the words started pouring out of her. She told him about her mother's abuse and her stepfather's continued sexual assaults. David listened to her story. He knew she was telling the truth, but he didn't want to get involved. It was easier to stay out of it. So instead of helping, he drove his young cousin right back home and dropped her off. Lisa was devastated. She didn't know what else to do. Up until this point, what Lisa's mother, 36-year-old Judy, did or didn't know about Jack's actions is hearsay. It's entirely possible that she was aware of what he was doing and just didn't care. At least she could plead ignorance if anyone confronted her. Until one day in 1984, according to testimony directly from Judy, she came home and found Jack raping Lisa. But rather than take Lisa's side, Judy blamed her. After that, Judy became an active participant in Lisa's torture. On at least two occasions, she reportedly forced her daughter to have sex with handymen in exchange for housework. Lisa had no say in the matter. She tried to reach out for help before and had been denied. Now she accepted that this was her life. But then in 1985, it seemed like there was a light at the end of the tunnel. For reasons unknown, Judy and Jack divorced. Judy wanted custody of the kids, so she made 17-year-old Lisa testify about the sexual assaults. 
It was hard to talk about, but Lisa thought that maybe, just maybe, if she told the truth, the judge would do something to help her. In the end, the judge granted Judy custody, but the abuse inflicted on Lisa was otherwise ignored. As far as we can tell, Jack never received any punishment for his crimes. He also later denied the allegations completely in court. But from where Lisa was standing, it felt more pointed. It seemed that no matter what she said, no one was ever going to step in. And the cycle only continued. Within a year, Judy married her third husband, Richard Bowman. For the first time, Judy's partner wasn't an issue for Lisa. That said, Richard's son, 25-year-old Carl, was. After a stint in the Navy, Carl entered Lisa's life during her senior year of high school. At the time, she had dreams of going to college. She couldn't afford it straight away, though, so she figured her best bet was to serve in the Air Force first and save up. It's possible Lisa found Carl's experience interesting. The Navy wasn't so far off from the Air Force. She likely had plenty of questions for him, and they were family now. Surely he could give her some pointers. Carl was more than happy to help, but that was probably because he found 17-year-old Lisa attractive, and he wanted to date her. It didn't matter to him that she was still a child, or that they were step-siblings. And while Lisa wasn't quite so gung-ho about it, she wasn't entirely repulsed by the idea. Besides, her mom thought it was a perfect match. So with a little nudging from Judy, Lisa agreed to a date. Not long after, Lisa discovered she was pregnant. And just like that, her plans for a college degree went out the door. As far as she could see it, there was only one option. In August 1986, 18-year-old Lisa married her stepbrother, 26-year-old Carl Bowman. Nine months later, she gave birth to her first child, Desiree Nicole. The union was a huge mistake. It's unclear exactly when the abuse began, but Carl started consistently beating and raping Lisa. One of Lisa's brothers testified that he found a recording of the violence inflicted on Lisa, indicating that Carl sometimes videotaped the assaults. Unsurprisingly, Lisa fell back on the same coping mechanism she'd used when her stepfather took her out to the shed. She split from reality, going somewhere else in her mind, somewhere much, much safer. But with the constant abuse, Lisa's dissociation became more permanent. It was so severe, in fact, that she started checking out of everyday life and turned a blind eye to the real causes of her problems. Her unyielding loyalty to Carl was proof of that. Despite the harm he inflicted, she constantly worried that he might leave her. She believed that as long as she kept having his children, then he'd have to stay. Plus, when she was pregnant, he didn't assault her as often. So, three more children came in the next three years. After the birth of their youngest daughter, Carl didn't want any more children, at least not with Lisa, so he told her to get her tubes tied. When she resisted, he threatened to take the kids away from her. Scared that she could lose everything, 22-year-old Lisa did as she was told and went to the doctors. 
She signed the consent forms, and then, even though she'd been entirely coerced, she was sterilized. Nothing got better after the procedure. Carl continued to assault her, and Lisa racked her brain for any way to stop him. Once again, she latched onto the idea that the only time she was somewhat safe was when she was pregnant. So in a bout of desperation, she told him that she was expecting again. Carl couldn't believe it. He'd wanted to avoid this very thing, and yet there was a slim chance that the surgery hadn't worked. So Carl listened. At least he did the first time. After a few months, Lisa said she had a miscarriage. Then she told him the same story again. Pretty soon, a pattern emerged where Lisa feigned pregnancies, then mysteriously lost the baby. It was an unending loop. Finally, Carl had enough. In 1995, 35-year-old Carl divorced 27-year-old Lisa. She took the kids and moved back in with her mother. It was supposed to be temporary, just till Lisa could stand on her own two feet again, but she ended up staying there for four years. It's difficult for us to know what happened in those years. It's possible that the reunion brought the mother and daughter closer together. It's also possible that Judy continued to sweep a lot of Lisa's trauma under the rug. Whatever the case, in 1999, 31-year-old Lisa finally found a reason to leave. She met Kevin Montgomery, and he seemed like a good man. He had three sons from his first marriage who visited him on the weekends. The rest of the time, he was all Lisa's. He was also her key to a new life. By the following spring, the two had tied the knot. Sadly, Lisa came with a lot of baggage. She wasn't officially diagnosed at the time, but mental health experts later confirmed that she was living with bipolar disorder during this period. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, bipolar disorder is a mental disorder that causes unusual shifts in mood, energy, activity levels, concentration, and the ability to carry out day-to-day -day tasks. It also includes the manic and depressive episodes that we've come to see as defining qualities of the disorder. Bipolar individuals can be in a state of utter elation one moment and then feel completely hopeless the next. Lisa alternated from being a recluse who spent hours alone in her room to a woman overcome with mania. She also struggled with the most basic tasks like cleaning. Their house was absolutely filthy. One spare room was filled to the brim with trash to the point that they couldn't use it for anything else. She was so out of it that she had head lice for five years and didn't even notice. Perhaps most worrying was Lisa's deep, obsessive need for another baby. The fact that she couldn't have any more children was breaking her. It got so bad that she tried to get her half-brother Tyler and his girlfriend Lori to give her their newborn son, Kyle. They may not have been the best parents in the world themselves, but they weren't about to give Lisa their kid, especially not when it seemed like she could barely take care of her own. Rather than take care of her four teenagers, Lisa usually retreated to her room. She'd spend hours on her computer where she found comfort in online forums. In one, she bragged about her children to strangers. In another, she asked questions about knitting. 
And then Lisa fell down an online hole and found herself in the niche world of dog breeding, specifically rat terriers. We don't know which came first, if she found the message board and then went out and bought her first dog, or if it was the other way around. Regardless, by June of 2003, 35-year-old Lisa had three dogs of her very own and was active in the rat terrier breeding community. And to her internet friends, Lisa seemed relatively normal. But in real life, she was spiraling. In fact, Lisa was still desperate for another baby and couldn't take her mind off her nephew, Kyle. And soon, she vowed to get custody of the little boy. She just needed to get his parents out of the picture first. Up next, Lisa breaks a family apart. Now back to the story. In 2003, 35-year-old Lisa Montgomery was determined to gain custody of her one-year-old nephew, Kyle. She already had four kids from a previous marriage, but after a lifetime of abuse, Lisa had developed a warped sense of reality. The only time she felt safe was when she was pregnant or with a newborn. It's not clear why Lisa felt so vulnerable in her current situation. Her husband, Kevin Montgomery, certainly wasn't pressuring her to have another child, but Lisa felt that she needed to give him a reason to stay with her. We can't talk about Lisa's fragile state without addressing the host of mental illnesses she was dealing with. While she wasn't diagnosed at the time, we now know that she was also living with complex post-traumatic stress disorder. According to the American Psychiatric Association, Post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD, is a psychiatric disorder that may occur in people who have experienced a traumatic event. Often, individuals with PTSD are dealing with intense feelings of fear, anger, sadness, and anxiety surrounding their trauma. Complex PTSD is similar. It just has additional possible symptoms. Some of these include the dissociation Lisa already experienced, on top of that, a person with complex PTSD can feel as if they are permanently damaged or worthless. This is because complex PTSD often stems from early childhood experiences that shape a person's self-image. There's a lot of overlap between its triggers and the adverse childhood experiences we talked about earlier. It can be caused by childhood abuse, repeatedly witnessing violence, being forced into prostitution or torture. All it would take is one of these events, but if someone endures multiple traumas, it becomes more likely that they'll suffer from complex PTSD. Lisa ticked all those boxes. That made it hard for her to believe that she mattered to anyone. The only way she'd ever felt valued was as a mother. Even though she couldn't physically have a child anymore, she was so detached from reality that she thought she had to. She figured her best option was to get custody of her nephew, Kyle. But to do that, she'd need to get rid of his parents, her half-brother, Tyler, and his girlfriend, Lori. Lisa knew that Tyler was dealing methamphetamine. She also knew that if he got caught, his child would be taken away from him. According to Diane Fanning in her book, Baby Be Mine, in July 2003, Lisa gave an anonymous tip to the local cops. The police raced to Tyler's house, where they found enough meth to arrest him and Lori. 
Tyler was charged with both possession and the manufacturing of it. He ended up getting sentenced to six years in prison. And as far as we can tell, Lori was also ordered to serve time. With Tyler and Lori in jail, Lisa felt sure that the courts would see that she was the best option for her nephew's welfare. But just to make sure that she got her way, Lisa feigned another pregnancy. She thought that would get her some extra brownie points. Of course, that meant lying to everyone she knew, including her husband. Kevin was thrilled by the news. He didn't know that she'd been sterilized years earlier and had no reason to doubt her. Lisa kept up the facade at Kyle's custody hearing. She argued that she was best suited to raise the boy because she'd be raising another child at the same time. Despite her pleas, the custody hearing went on to a second session. That one was months away, and by then, Lisa would either have to really look like she was about to give birth, or she would need another story. Luckily, she had experience weaving this kind of lie. When she showed up in court again, decidedly not pregnant, Lisa claimed she'd had a miscarriage, hoping the judge might take pity on her. She'd lost one baby, but now here was her chance for another. But the judge either didn't buy her story or didn't care. Instead of giving Kyle to Lisa, he granted custody to Lisa's mother. Lisa couldn't believe it. Her chance to have another baby had been snatched away from her and given to her mother of all people, the woman who'd made her childhood a living hell. It was too much to bear. Kevin tried his best to comfort Lisa. He believed that her pain was twofold. First, she'd lost her pregnancy, and then she'd lost the custody battle. So he sat back and let Lisa grieve in her own way, which meant she retreated to the safety of her online world. Unfortunately, Lisa quickly found herself in trouble there too. In an attempt to sell more puppies, she'd exaggerated the pedigree of her dogs, and another breeder called her out on it. The rest of the forum was outraged. They wanted Lisa ousted from the group. Their community was built on trust, and she'd blatantly lied to them. Lisa read all the messages, absolutely devastated. She didn't know what to do. But then, someone came to her defense. A woman named Bobby Jo Stinnett posted, urging everyone to give Lisa a second chance. She said it must have just been a misunderstanding. According to Diane Fanning in her book, Baby Be Mine, the others seemed to listen to her. One by one, they commented in agreement. They'd give Lisa the benefit of the doubt. That's when Lisa clicked on the name of the stranger who'd vouched for her. She wanted to know more about Bobby Joe. Lisa found out that Bobby Joe was a 22-year-old woman who lived one state over in Missouri. She was one of about 300 residents of a small town called Skidmore, and she'd lived there all her life. She'd recently married her high school sweetheart and was known for her way with animals. She loved horses and dogs, and they seemed to return that affection tenfold. But here's the most important thing Lisa discovered about Bobby Joe. She was pregnant. After more internet stalking, she found out that Bobby Joe would be at a dog show in Abilene, Kansas. So she wrote the younger woman a message saying that she would be there too. Bobby Joe responded to say she was excited to meet Lisa in person. 
In May of 2004, it was time for the dog show. 36-year-old Lisa got dressed in maternity clothes. She was once again pretending to be pregnant, this time with twins, and it seems somewhere along in her first trimester. She packed up her car, took one of her rat terriers, and drove all the way to Abilene. There, she finally came face to face with Bobby Joe. She was ecstatic to meet the woman who had come to her rescue online, and as they talked, Lisa couldn't keep her eyes off of Bobby Joe's bump. If Bobby Joe thought anything of it, it didn't seem to bother her. Even after they left the show that day, the two stayed in touch. According to Fanning, they exchanged their plans for breeding more rat terriers and delighted over their pregnancies. It was the start of a great friendship. At least, that's what Bobby Joe thought. Lisa had much darker intentions. It's not clear when exactly she formulated her plan, but by October 2004, Lisa started to lay the groundwork. She needed to find a baby to make her latest pregnancy real, and she'd settled on Bobby Joe's. The thing was, Lisa had said she was carrying twins, so one of her imaginary babies had to go. She logged on to the Radder Chatter Forum, her go-to place those days. She typed out a sad message to her group. She'd lost one of the twins, she wrote. Thankfully, the doctors were able to save the other one. She received some messages of condolence in return and carried on with her scheme. The next month, she messaged Bobby Joe under an alias and inquired about buying one of her puppies. They scheduled an appointment for mid-December, a month before Bobby Joe's due date. Now that Lisa had a meeting set, she turned her sights to the logistics. She bought a home birthing kit. She looked up directions from her house to Bobby Joe's and printed them out. Finally, on November 17th, she found a video online of a doctor performing a cesarean section. She watched it intently, rewinding and taking mental notes. With that, all the pieces were in place. All she had to do now was wait. But then, her ex-husband, Carl Bowman, came back into the picture and forced Lisa's hand. On December 10th, Carl filed for custody of two of his four children with Lisa. According to him, the two teenagers didn't want to live with their mom anymore. Carl was determined to get his kids, and he had an ace up his sleeve to make sure he won. He told Lisa that he knew she wasn't pregnant, and he was going to prove it. They both knew it would look very bad for her if a judge found out she was faking it. Needless to say, Lisa felt the pressure. This wasn't just about having another child to keep her husband. Her other kids were involved now. The way she saw it, the only option was to produce a baby. Then she'd have proof she'd been pregnant all along. Carl would be the liar, and her kids would stay with her. That night, Lisa booted up her computer and signed on to Ratter Chatter. Then, according to Diane Fanning, she typed out one last message. Baby any day, maybe today. She hit submit. There it was on the message board for all to see. Proof that she'd have a baby within a few days. 
Afterwards, she gathered the printed MapQuest pages, went down to the kitchen, and picked out a knife. Then she headed out to the car. It was time to go get her baby. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next week with part two, where Lisa goes to drastic measures to get the baby she needs. You can find all episodes of Female Criminals and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals is a Spotify original from ParCast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Female Criminals was written by Alex Burns, with writing assistance by Jane O. and Joel Callen, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor and Chelsea Wood. I'm Vanessa Richardson. I'm Sarah Turney, host of the new Spotify original from ParCast, Disappearances. Every Thursday, join me for an exploration into history's most gripping missing persons cases. Following timelines, analyzing clues, and piecing together as many answers as possible to find the truth. From prison breaks and child abductions to second chances and even murder. We'll journey through the many reasons people disappear Follow my new podcast, Disappearances, free and only on Spotify.